prepare to hear the truth from a real whistleblower and American patriot. Here's civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and indefinitely suspended FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us for the Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Wednesday, December 14th. I've got it uh, slighter, slightly later than normal. We've got uh, 4.15 in the afternoon here. And I've got with me producer Phil, who's going to be... Uh, keeping us on track, I hope. Today's episode is going to be called What Started as a Passion Has Become a Paycheck. I think this is a common sentiment for people in the FBI. It's something that has identified um, or people have identified with when I've spoken to them, former agents, current agents. And uh, I've had at least three long form conversations today with friends of mine in the bureau in various different places, you know, different levels of uh, experience and, and seniority. And they all kind of agree with that. Like right now, people in the FBI that want to keep their job are tucking in, they're holding on, and they are trying to just not upset anybody. Uh, a good friend of mine told me that he was able to kind of keep a job that is sort of administrative right now as long as he wants. And there's this constant fear that you text the wrong thing to the wrong person, you send the wrong email with a sentiment that offends some sort of sensitive group. And that could be the end for you. Um, it's very similar to the kind of experience that I've had. And, you know, you, you step on the wrong toes and that's where you end up. So what started as a passion to become a paycheck. I first actually heard that from producer Phil, and that was a couple of years ago. Phil, uh, when did you first realize that that was the case for you, bud? Well, I think it starts even earlier than when you're in the job. Do you remember when you were at uh, the academy and maybe like day one, day two, they asked the question, something to the effect of, hey, who took a pay cut to actually join the FBI? And like right. a majority of the hands in the class go up, which stands to reason because most of these folks were probably professionals before. Sure. And a GS 10 step one really isn't a ton of money. So 65, something like that, thousand right. dollars a year kind of deal. So when you're 30 years old and presumably the organization is hiring professionals, you're probably statistically making more than that. But then it begs the question, well, who would do that? Who would take a pay cut when they got be making more money elsewhere? Well, it's somebody right. who wanted a job that seemed noble to protect their fellow Americans from force and fraud. And that's and the passion. just a few years later, they ultimately discover, oh, that's not actually what we do here. Right. Actually, this is an organization that is in the appearance of fighting crime business, not the crime fighting business. So that's the truth. That's so when, that, yeah, that's when a paycheck uh, is no longer a passion. I've had a um, an ongoing discussion. Phil and I used to sit on surveillance together sometimes, and we would have these funny little conversations where I said the FBI is in the business of law enforcement cosplay, specifically federal law enforcement cosplay, which is to say that we looked like we were doing law enforcement. We were doing activities that were related to law enforcement activities, and yet a lot of it is cartoon performative theater, um, right down to the fact that everybody shows up at the, the firearm shoots and they wear clothes that they have never worn between the last firearm shoot and that one. They're the same Quantico khakis. It's the same you know, baseball hat they wore when they were training at the academy. It's just performative. They put on a leather holster that they would never use and they never have. You know, They carry 
three magazines like that's something they're going to do in their daily life which is absurd like you know people don't walk around with three magazines on them unless you're a duty cop and you have a duty belt uh but fbi agents put them on because there's three magazine changes in our in our qualification and so that's what they do it's very performative and very silly i used to try to do magazine changes out of my pocket sometimes because sometimes i carry a magazine in a pocket i used to do it with the two that i would carry if i was going into like kind of a heavier duty area where i thought i might actually have to shoot somebody or defend my life that way so i would always carry these like kydexes but i'd never carry more than two and i always would reload magazines on the on the range because that's that's what real people who really carry guns do um and the fbi is not that oftentimes um that doesn't mean that there are not serious people in the fbi doesn't mean there's not more serious people than me there certainly are um it's just one of those things that i found to be kind of interesting so um the paycheck becoming the pension um it's it's dangerous it's funny because i'm one of those hands that did not go up you know uh, my the most i ever made well, I take that back. I made more money before I went to the military, but once I enlisted, I came out and I was making $35,000 a year or so as a paramedic in an emergency room and also on an ambulance. There's not a lot of pay in that. There's a lot of responsibility. In fact, a lot more than most FBI agents handle daily. You know, it's someone's grandma that's dying right there. It's a husband that's having a heart attack that still has children. Um, there's a lot of kind of gravity in the situation. And we pay paramedics very, very little across this country because it only requires a high school diploma for most people. And so, you know, I, I did that and I came and I almost doubled my salary. Uh, you know, I walked, actually, I was a stay-at-home dad with no kids be, directly before the academy. So I had no paycheck. My wife was earning and uh, we went there and paid off all our student loans. And I think that's something we should talk about is that the, it's, it was mentioned on my Twitter feed today that having debt and significant debt, whether it's credit card or car, you know, anything outside of a mortgage that's that long-term, you know, tied to a property debt really leaves you in a vulnerability where you need that job and you've got to do what you're told. And that culture, that debt culture that the America, you know, that we all live in has created leaves us vulnerable in the national security realm. I think um, you're going to have to do things that you may not be comfortable with because uh, otherwise they come and take all your things. All your toys are gone. They're going to come and they're going to wreck your credit. You'll never be able to buy another house. Um, a lot of my colleagues are in that position where they are not necessarily paycheck to paycheck, but they are debt payment to debt payment service where at any moment, you know, they may not be able to meet those obligations without the paycheck that they've, they've signed on for. Um, they've they've over leveraged themselves. I think it's a national security issue. I think the fact that I did not owe anybody a penny with the exception of my mortgage when I made the decision to speak forward, you know, step out and speak forward. Um, that's the same decision that Stephen Friend made. We both had financial safety nets that we had built for ourselves. I think that is a critical, critical requirement. Um, and, and as a contrast, when I was an early, you know, early in my FBI career, I got assigned to the surveillance squad. We're out there, um, in the cold and it's the first sequester that I experienced, which is when the FBI continued to ask us to go to work, but they weren't going to pay us. Maybe that we ended up losing like one paycheck and then one was delayed for a couple of days. It was not a significant life experience for me. And I had senior agents 20, 25 years in, including my supervisor who were concerned whether or not they were going to be able to meet their financial obligations. They were talking about how Navy federal credit was extending paychecks basically, and they were going to keep making those deposits. They were going to uh, um, honor the direct deposits that were already ongoing. Even if the direct deposit didn't show up, they would credit it against your account. So people could make the, you know, make ends meet, which is insane because at that point in time, I was making, you know, 80 or $90,000 a year. And the FBI salary for, for people's awareness goes from your first year, you're making, you know, somewhere between 60 and 70,000, depending on the office you're in. And then it climbs up. And by the time that you hit five years in, which is the tenure 
um, when you hit the GS 13 level, the base pay with no locality adjustment, no cost of living adjustment is like $120,000 a year. It's something right around that 119 and change. So, you know, people in DC are making 134, 135, San Francisco, maybe 138, 140. Um, that's at five years in. That's a pretty good salary for the kind of work that we got to do. And, you know, they're not paying you because you're the best in the world. That's an absurd contention. What they should be paying you for is that you have absolutely undeniable integrity and that you cannot be purchased. They're prepaying that you will do the right thing because you know cops work for far less, detectives work for far less and do a lot more on the ground, direct impact on the, the public safety. But the idea is, is that a federal agent should be beyond reproach, that when you make a case, it sticks. When you do it, it's for the right reasons in the right way. And you do not have any you know outside interest that's going to slow you down. So it's worth noting that that's kind of the the expectation. And there's something very dangerous about people who are looking for a canned food kitchen in the basement of the Washington field office where I was. And I'm, I'm telling you, my the agents I worked with made $175,000 a year. They were at the top of the federal scale. They maxed out the pay grade as a GS 1310 plus 25% for law enforcement availability. So I'm talking specific numbers because I think a lot of people do not have a concept of what an FBI paycheck is. Nobody gets rich, like nobody gets filthy rich being an FBI agent, um, at least at the brick agent level, which is to say the so-called rank and file. $175,000 though is a comfortable living for a lot of people. And some of these folks are you know, multiple GS salaries in the same house. If you have a spouse that's making 60, 70, 80, or 100, or if you've got two GS 13s, which happens, or a GS 13 and a 14, you know, you're, you're talking about a $350,000 a year household. Um, that's a significant amount of money, at least in my experience. Cause like I've, I've lived on $35,000 a year and I could do it. I'm living on less than that right now because I gave up my salary and I gave up my house and, uh, you know, you got to cut, you got to tighten your belt up, but that's something that many of you should probably be familiar with, especially my friends who are in law enforcement, my folks who are in the military, you know, officers make a decent paycheck, but none of them are getting rich. It's the same kind of idea. Um, so the idea that you're going to let the passion that you had to come in and do the right thing get taken over by just maintaining this paycheck. It happens when you're in a debt culture and it happens, I think, when the agency doesn't live up to your expectations. It doesn't do the job that it, it swears it's going to do. And and then people take that on. They, they become that person that's just doing enough to get by. It's just five more years. That's a terrible way to live, live your life. There's very few people that could do that and maintain the same focus and the same kind of integrity, I would say. So that's kind of what we're looking at. <clears throat> I want to talk about I have a couple of notes here, so I'm going to refer to them. But one of the cul the cultural problems within the FBI, and, and folks are starting to kind of see this, I'll give a concrete example, is that when executive management screws the pooch, and they are the ones who oftentimes do this sort of thing. Like, sure, there's a guy who does a backflip in a, in a nightclub in Colorado and, you know, shoots somebody in the leg. That's a moron move. I think the guy was probably a nice guy. He just blew it, you know, and ran through a bunch of stop signs on a night. That I won't say that could happen to anybody, but I will say that, like, mistakes happen to a lot of us for a lot of reasons. It doesn't, you know, people drive drunk when they don't think they're drunk. There's a lot of things that we are kind of excusable foolishness. Um, you know, he got in trouble because he tried to play it off. But I'm talking about kind of the serious darkness that exists when we're talking about sort of the evil that's in the FBI. It's, it's the banal kind of everyday evil of choosing to do something that they think is good because of their political beliefs. Uh, they're willing to abuse the agency's credibility and sell out people like Phil and I to do something that they think is morally righteous when in fact it has, you know, it's it's not what the FBI does. So a very specific example was what happened with Larry Nasser. Um, I have two daughters and I've said that before. 
when you think about someone abusing children, there are a few things that get my blood boiling much more than that. I think that is almost universal across the spectrum of agents that I've dealt with. People refer to, to violent crimes against children work as like some of the most righteous work you can do. Like running down child abusers and traffickers is something that I think everybody in the in the bureau, nobody would object to being assigned to that. And the people that would, I don't want to work with them. Let's just be clear about that. Same thing with any kind of local cops. Like if you don't want to go after people hurting kids, I don't know what you're doing. Uh, I have a very tangible experience of doing that. I've, I've taken children um, out of abusive situations as as young as like 18 months old. Um, when I was a paramedic, I've been called and, and been the transporting medic to a children's hospital for examination. You know, it's everything that a local cop can do not to put somebody in the ground when they find out that they threw a baby who's 18 months old down the stairs. Um, I have an 18 month old. I have felt like throwing him down the stairs. Sometimes they do that sort of thing, but no, that's not a parent move. That's like a, like a, just a disgusting monster move. And the guys that I've seen do it, you know, they're lucky to be alive. And if they go to prison, they're probably going to experience the full wrath of what people who are in prison who were abused experience. So it's, it's, it's really righteous work. And what I'm getting at is what happened with Larry Nasser's case is, is so ugly because of how it happened. It is not strictly speaking, as far as I can tell, a federal crime. There may be some interstate transportation that kind of went in, but the actual abuse individually is a local criminal issue for a physician to betray his you know, oath that he has, the Hippocratic oath, and abuse his position of power, particularly a government doctor like this, um, to take advantage of young women, which is what happened. Here's kind of where it gets really sketchy. Someone reported that to an FBI agent in, uh, was it the Indianapolis office? Does that sound right, Phil? Yeah, that you sounds right. Yeah. I'll pull it up here while you're all right. So Phil's going to confirm that, but I believe it was out of Indianapolis. And when that allegation went in, every single FBI agent, and I, I don't know if it's every FBI employee, but certainly I was, um, we're all what's called mandated reporters of child abuse. My wife is in the same scenario. She's a, a marriage and family therapist. So when you are a mandated reporter, even if you have no strictly speaking like liability to do anything about it, you are required by law to continue to report and make sure that this information gets passed to the right authorities. Um, the agent who had this allegation made to him, um, and it may have been a her actually, I, I don't actually know the, the brick agent that was involved in this, um, went to a supervisor. The supervisor went to the ASAC. I'm, I'm just kind of going up the chain. So it's, you know, it's GS 13 or 10 to 13 is kind of your entry level agents. The 14 is the first supervisor, the supervisory agent. Um, and then you move into an assistant special agent in charge. And then usually the top guy is or girl is called a special agent in charge. And that's an SES position, which is senior executive service. If you followed me at all, you, you know that I have a problem with SES, um, for what it's worth, President Trump had an issue with them. They're the kind of the deep state. Um, they're the issue that needs to be handled in a lot of ways in DC. They're the problem. So when we talk about actually Sam Brinton randomly, like the guy who stole the luggage that likes to dress in a dog costume, was an SES. Uh, you know, usually it's a long-term government employee. Uh, randomly, in their case, they made it a non-politically appointed, you know, job so that he could get into that because I don't think he would have cleared a, a Senate confirmation hearing. So, you know, the, the the 13 or so that got the input that that Larry Nasser was doing these things to these girls took it to the 14, the 14 brought it to the ASAC, the ASAC said, hey, look, you know, boss, this is to the, the SES level. We've got a serious problem because this is a, a, you know, a very notable, what we would call a sensitive investigative matter. And the FBI handles sensitive investigative matters very specifically. They've got a whole, you know, criteria of how to adjudicate what that looks like and and who is involved and, and whether or not they get certain protections. But essentially it just, it shields the case from every scrutiny outside of uh, the normal agents that might be able to, you know, query uh, our internal file servers. And they get a little bit of extra, I won't say leeway, but they get a little extra privacy within the FBI's 
um, investigative process. And so it's shielded from a lot of eyes and not everybody can, can get involved in it and so on. So you usually have to be a case manager and part of the actual investigation. So this would have been a SIM. Larry Nassar would have been a public official or a public entity that would have been likely a sensitive, you know, he's a, he's a physician and so on. And he was working for the, uh, the gymnastics, um, you know, the gymnastics team for the USA Olympic committee. Here's where it gets to be a problem. The special agent in charge, and Phil's going to confirm the office, um, had a sitting job offer in retirement. Was it Indianapolis? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the special agent in charge there had a job offer. And my understanding was it was like a security position for the United States Olympic Committee, or it may have been for USA Gymnastics specifically. But regardless, it was related to, and it was a conflict of interest situation um, to go and go against what Larry Nasser was doing, who was representing US Gymnastics. And so the... The brick agent brought it all the way up the chain and was told like this has been handled and then it was not handled and girls were abused for longer and the FBI could have gotten out in front of it and reported it to local authorities and made the credible allegations and assisted if necessary, but more likely not just been a, a pass through of the information to the people that needed to go do that, that local investigation and stop this monster who was abusing the trust of these girls. And that didn't happen. And so what that tells us is, is that the failure was at the top. So the executive management, the senior executive service in this case, screwed it up. And then the result was guys like Phil and I got hit with what we call a virtual academy. Anybody who's familiar with government work has probably seen the kind of virtual academy trainings we do. But these are um, online you know, slideshows, very generic. It's prepared by some person that I don't know how that's their job, but their job is to create like digital trainings that don't do anything. And then there's like a knowledge test and uh, videos and somebody reading and narrating a, you know, a bunch of crap. And it, it's garbage. It's, it's it's like a penance. And in the case of the Larry Nasser case, you know, the executive management screwed the pooch on this and exposed little girls to a real serious issue for a lot longer. And the brick agents who had nothing to do with it are the ones who got the training. There's never a mea culpa in the FBI, in my experience, and maybe that's the case for other government agencies too, but nobody ever owns it. It's like, I screwed this up. I'm going to eat it. I'm going to retire and follow my sword and resign because I'm disgraced. It's always like, ooh, can we make somebody else fall for it? So the way that it worked is that senior executive, that SES, the, the SAC for that office, retired with pension and went to go probably take that job with the, the, the Olympic Committee. I don't have any further information on that, but walked away unscathed, essentially, without being named uh, in the public sphere. And then you're, and then the DOJ declined charges because that's what they do. Like the DOJ is a co-signer for the FBI's malfeasance. Um, the brick agent was fired, despite the fact that there's probably pretty good evidence that that was not the fault of that person. Now, maybe they should have followed up, but like where I come from, if I go tell my boss, "Hey, man, I got this problem," and he says, "I've got it," that's the end of it for me. And I think that should be the expectation for people of honor. This goes back to that, that what that paycheck is supposed to be. It's not that you're the best at anything in particular, because I don't think that I'm the greatest criminal investigator ever to walk the earth, but I am someone of integrity and you can't make me do something that I, that I believe is morally wrong. Um, hopefully that's been proven out over the last couple months. So when you deal with uh, the idea that you go and bring it to your boss, you should be able to trust that your boss says, I got it. That's the end of it. It should be the end of it. Um, it's a troubling it's a troubling kind of thing and this has happened over and over and over again it doesn't matter whether it was FISA abuse that nobody in the FBI was involved in minus like a handful of the small cadre of people in DC and then we all had to take crossfire hurricane FISA training including people who do don't even know what a FISA is like they've never seen it they've never been around anybody that signed a FISA or or helped do the research on the background of it there's a lot of people that had to do quote unquote FISA training that you know they missed the mark 
it had it wasn't the people who committed the crime that did the penance for this or uh, committed the sin rather that did the penance. So that's an ongoing issue in the FBI. Um, I think uh, I think it's worth noting that this kind of stuff is just pretty common. I'm going to bring up a couple of things that came out of my Twitter feed because I think they're really interesting. Um, to this morning, I woke up and I saw that Dinesh D'Souza, who I, I've been in contact with recently, uh, said, I'm going to quote him. Uh, do you mind pulling up the uh, the tweet there? Yep, I got We're it. on it. So, so Dinesh says, uh, you know, I'm not saying that ordinary FBI agent is corrupt or that the FBI, you know, ordinary FBI agent is corrupt. The agents are just, quote unquote, following orders the way the Germans did in the 1930s. Like I've been preaching this. So this is true. Um, this is how corruption and gangsterism trickles down through the agencies of the state. Bad people make the good people carry out nefarious schemes. That's I I I co-sign on that. I told him exactly. I was like, Hey, you're over the mark right now. Um, I sent him a, a quick text message and told him that I said, if the average agent won't or can't stand up for their own rights, and this is the situation that I found to be the case, if they're not going to stand up for their own rights, how in the world are they going to stand up for the everyday Americans rights that they don't even know? And, and, and that's a real serious problem. It's a real serious question and real serious people need to answer it. Um, I think Chris Ray should be put that on there. One of my supervisors told me, I've, I've now said this on two podcasts at a radio show, but essentially um, my, my supervisor came to me when I was telling him that I was under no circumstances going to take a COVID-19 test without symptoms. First of all, I'm a paramedic. If I'm sick, I know it just like everybody else in the world does, but like I've got some medical credentials to back it up. And then moreover, um, I had a top secret clearance. So if you can't trust me to stay at home with a box of Kleenex, like what can you trust me to do? I think everybody knows since 2020 that going into the office with a hacking cough or blowing your nose makes everybody uncomfortable. I, I don't actually think it's a problem. I think go on and, and spread it and get rid of it. And like, we're all going to come out the same, you know, we'll all be immunized the same way we always have in history. But for now, there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of concerns. So you don't get to go into the office. If you got the sniffles, you got to stay home. And I have a lot of sick leave. And so does everybody else who's a federal employee that spent a little bit of time in. And so if you can't trust me with that, then you better take my top secret clearance and pull it right away. It's real straightforward, um, non-negotiable. And my boss said, look, I know what, what we're doing is wrong. I'm paraphrasing here, um, but I've got alimony because he was divorced and I've got a mortgage and I can't take the stand with you. So you've just admitted to me that you're willing to sell your character for $150,000 or $170,000 a year because we all have the same oath. And we all have the same perspective, I think, at least at one point in time, everybody feels pretty ideological and pretty uh, idealistic rather when they're at the FBI Academy. It's like, you know, it's rah-rah team America. It's exactly what you're seeing behind me here. It's a flag with night vision and a freaking painted rifle that's ready to go get bad guys as needed. And that's what the, that's what the badge is. Uh, you know, it's that shiny piece of, of uh, copper or whatever the heck it is that just says like, you know, I believe in this thing and I'm willing to stand up and, and be the guy that puts this on my belt and identifies myself as one of the good guys. So what happens when you can't? Uh, very dangerous. And I'm going to segue into another uh, sort of Twitter piece here. And I don't mean to be this, like a Twitter outing, but if you're not following me on um, on social media, you can at Kyle Serafin. It's at Kyle Serafin. It's really straightforward. I'm on Truth and I'm on so, um, uh, Twitter. Um, I'm interesting. I've had a, a surge in in follower account under the, uh, the Twitter account, which is kind of cool for me because it's a much wider audience. A lot of people that don't agree with me. That's what I, I prefer to talk to people that don't agree with me and maybe uh, change some hearts and minds. I think that uh, the things that I'm saying are not partisan and they're pretty reasonable. And with a small amount of snark when it comes to uh, barstool sports, apparently I started a fire the other day on accent. But when we talk about this, this next one here, this is something that's really near and dear to my heart. So if you pull up the tweet about, um, about Ashley Roberts and Brian Costello, these are two WFO uh, off, you know, agents 
Uh, my understanding is, is they're relatively junior in their career. And, and that may mean that they only have, you know, the same amount of time that I have. People probably called me junior at six years in. Um, but relatively speaking, like at least one of them is probably under three years in, you know, might even be still be on probation. And we're talking about people that are working for counterterrorism four, which is one of the, you know, one of the multiple counterterrorism squads in Washington, DC that does domestic terrorism. So why is that relevant? And and why did I, you know, send their picture out there? And the answer is really straightforward. They showed up at you know, sometime in uh, after my friend had already showed up and 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 been removed of his clearance, he was a uh, national security branch employee as a GS fourteen. He was a MAPA, so working um, management and program analysis jobs. It's kind of a catch all title that allows him to do kind of a, a wide variety of things. He showed up at the Capitol on January sixth. He listened to the sitting president speak in what I would call a very very clearly First Amendment protected activity. And then he went and sat and had his lunch on the lawn outside the Capitol. And from the way he tells me, he was sitting low enough that he couldn't see what was going on there. But when they started hearing it and they got a whiff of tear gas, they decided it was time to go. That's not a crime. That's not even, uh, there, there's there's no allegation or information that that is a problem for anybody. And the FBI cleared him of wrongdoing. We're, we're unable to bring any criminal charges, obviously, because that's nonsensical. They still kept him suspended. And then these agents showed up like a month later in front of his house. They didn't leave a card. And they didn't say who they were. They were on his ring cam. He was able to track it down because we've got a pretty exclusive and pretty extensive source network of people that work all over the FBI. And they were able to tell us who it was. And lo and behold, they showed up again. They showed up again in uh, either late October or early November. I think it was actually in early November. Um, 90 days after the first time, which is when file reviews are due. That's what Phil will, will be able to co-sign on for me. But file reviews happen every every 90 days. It's just a check up to make sure that you're actually moving the cases forward. You're earning that paycheck you get from the FBI. And so, you know, they're out there checking the box. You don't get to check the box when somebody has legal representation as an FBI employee and you've been notified of it. That's a, that's a violation of our policy. And they were making phone calls despite the fact that they'd been notified that they had legal counsel um, to my friend's wife. And so they're like leaving voice messages. This woman, Ashley, is doing that. And, um, you know, first of all, it's a policy violation as far as anybody of us can tell. Like you should, every time you're notified of, of counsel, you've got six months to basically go through counsel. Um the second thing is, is why are they trying to jam him up on counterterrorism charges? Like the guy didn't do anything. That's pretty obvious. And so what kind of BS case are they working? Uh, it doesn't matter if it was what we call a contact case, which is that you had contact with someone else that they're investigating. Go through the attorney. It's very easy. Submit your questions in writing if you want. They had access to him. They knew his chain of command. They knew his, you know, his managers and so on. And so these people showed back up. So I, I published their picture on November 9th uh, of this year. So about a month ago. And um, that was the end of it. You know, we, we got a pretty good traction on, I think 135,000 eyeballs impressions were made on, on Twitter, which is kind of fun for me. It's like a totally new venue, but I keep score on some of these things. Like I want to see people see wrongdoing, what I think is holding them accountable. And then, um, sure enough, my buddy calls me this week and is like, Hey man, like don't do anything about it, which doesn't work with me by the way. Uh, but don't do anything about it. But, uh, the office of the inspector general is calling and they're compelling an interview on me. And they're, you know, asking my lawyer to call in and say what my role is and quote unquote, leaking the photographs of these people. Well, number one, screw you. You're an FBI agent. That means you get that paycheck because you have to go out in public like every other law enforcement officer in this country. And you are subject to being videoed. You're subject to being uh, talked to by somebody else. The news may show up. Your, your name and your identity are not protected. You are not a spy. As much as I thought it was really funny to tell people I was a secret agent because everything I did had the word secret written on it when I was working counterintelligence. You're not a secret agent when you work national security. You're a publicly paid you know, government official in pursuit of your duties. And you have zero expectation of privacy on someone else's front porch. Like, do you not know what a ring cam is? It's really not that hard. 
That's the thing that you pushed the button and the picture was taken. You activated the camera when you went and rang it or when you stepped up on the porch. So give me a break on that. Um, my buddy, Steve Friend, who we'll hear from in a little bit, he's going to come back and do our crime and punishment segment, which I really love. Uh, you know, he worked on an Indian reservation and the uh, the the natives on the, the or the Native Americans in the tribe there set up a Facebook page so they could throw spottings of his F-150 when he was driving around the res because they wanted to be able to keep track of where he was doing enforcement. And, you know, and that's very common. Um, on Indian reservations, things like that. It's like tracking down where the feds are. Like everybody knows what the fed trucks are. They're the white F-150 that's got a big camper shell on the back of it and is collecting evidence. And it has the white guy in it that uh, has a beard, generally speaking. Like that's fairly common type of dude. Um, my buddy is one of those guys right now in Montana. Like they totally know who you are. They'll pull up and talk to you and they'll go, hey, like, what's up, white boy? Like, It's really funny stuff. It's like one of the most comical things about doing Indian reservation work is that people know exactly who you are. There's zero anonymity and you're like a local detective. Like you go out there and do major crimes. So the idea that these people think they have this expectation of privacy and nobody should be publishing their photograph. Like, first of all, uh, you suspended the man without pay. It's a photograph that he owns. He can do whatever the heck he wants with it. And what he did was put it into a whistleblower group and ask if anybody knew who these clowns were. And it turns out, yeah, somebody knew who those clowns were. And they told me. So I took it on my own to go do this. You know, he's he's got no blame, but he said he would defend my right to do it because he's also a military veteran and he spent 20 years in the army and he's a combat wounded guy. Like this, this is the freedoms that we all fight for. Like at this point, I've more or less entered the, the realm of being a, a member of the press. Uh, I think the argument could be made. I talked to an FBI lawyer the other day. He was a friend. And he was like, yeah, you're protected under DOJ policy. Like you are the press. You are doing a, a podcast. You are presenting information. Like I am now a sim if the FBI is being honest about the way their policy works, because I've done more interviews with national level, um, you know, TV shows and radio shows. And I've talked to larger audiences than most TV reporters get in any given two months of their lives. You know, I've been on the Bongino show for what, four times now on Fox News. It's not long hits, but it's enough to talk to an audience of several million. I've been on his radio show where they have three to four or five million people up. I've talked to Sebastian Gorka's radio audience. I've spoken to Jesse Kelly. Um, I just spoke to to Vince Colonnese up in WMLL just before uh, you know taping this, which was my old radio station I listened to when I drove in and out to work. Um, literally, audiences of millions of people are getting access to what I have to say, and then whatever number of people are seeing it on Twitter and, and so on. So, you know, at this point, I'm I'm more a citizen journalist than I am an FBI agent. I haven't been paid as an FBI agent since what? May of this year. Like I'm done with that as far as I can tell. So if I choose to put something that's a public interest, which is a couple of FBI agents violating policy, and you know, the, the response has been overwhelming. I'm actually going to scroll down and see how many impressions we have because I think that's kind of interesting. So as of right now, the tweet that I, I sent out yesterday has 175,000 impressions. And um it says 41 people followed our account. It's actually like probably a couple hundred at this point, but it's been liked, you know, 1400 plus times um, over 600 of you or close to 600 of you have sent something out and a hundred of you have, uh, have made comments on, on what your position is. And the position is overwhelmingly uh, negative about FBI agents showing up at your door in the same way that I felt when the ATF showed up at my door, having feds at your door is a terrible feeling. It's not good. So long and short of it is you've got this big problem where we've got agents that are willing to do what they're told. And they don't think, is this wrong or is this convenient? Um, as I told somebody in an interview earlier today, you know, the uh, the right choice is always, it's, it's pretty simple to identify what it is, um, but it's not always easy. And that's kind of the big differential there. So um, I want to kind of talk briefly too about what kind of stuff that leads to, the kind of people that are willing to keep doing and following orders because it's the, you know they, it's convenient and easy is how you get to the people that suspended me and and I'm going to do a little bit of a kind of a 
I don't want to do a hitch out per se, but I'm going to name check somebody. So there's a woman named Jennifer Moore. She's the executive assistant director of our human resources, uh, human resources department. She's in charge of secretary, uh, what do you call it? The security division, sec D is what we call it. Sometimes it's hard to escape the FBI um, acronyms, which are, or, or like weird little, like I told somebody something about humant or rumant the other day. I was talking to a cop and rumant is rumor intelligence. It's like everything in the Intel community is an int, but uh, anyhow, so she's uh, in charge of sec D our security division. She's in charge of the human resources, which we call D and she's in charge of the training division. And uh, my buddy who is in training division, who I won't name, but works over there in the training division mentioned to me today that they keep putting all the worst agents and supervisors that have a terrible history. They put the worst people to go to training. And now that's common in things like the military, but there's no excuse in the FBI. We should have the best people doing the training and it should be a burden that they have to go and shoulder. They have to step away from doing really good casework. So they bring the next generation of really good agents on. Instead, we bring in like just garbage. Um, the woman who was the, the AD of training when I was going through the academy got up and said the dumbest, most racist thing I've ever heard anyone talk about. And her excuse was, is that her husband is black. But um, she's famous for being kind of a, like a ditzy moron. She gets up in front of hundreds of, of uh, trainees and says, you know, you always got to have your head on a swivel. I went to a, a convenience store the other day and, you know, it was me and my husband and my two kids. And, um, you know, these two black guys came in and they were wearing hoodies and we thought they were casing the place. And so we executed our protocol because we're law enforcement at all times, which made me want to puke. And she goes, uh, you know, I took care of the kids and my husband's a tactical guy. He went in to go like, make sure nothing happened. And it's like, okay, well, what's the payoff? Did they rob the store? Did you interrupt the robbery? No, they were like two dudes buying a, a pack of cools and then they left because they're just regular dudes. And she thinks that black people all in, you know, are involved in crime when they have a hoodie. And she was like, and I'm not being racist because my husband is black. He has dreadlocks. It's like, that doesn't excuse being racist. That's like actually the definition of racist. You judge someone based on their race. You're a moron. You shouldn't be training anybody. Like you shouldn't tell anybody what a tactical mindset is, but that's the kind of people that teach at the FBI Academy. And she was the assistant director. That's an SES position. That's after she was the special agent in charge somewhere. Um, and Kelly is just like a fool. Like you hear stuff like that and serious people like me look around and just go like, who, who's in charge here? Like, God, I hope the field is not the same people, but where did that person come from? They came from the field. They came from a, another SES position and they came from another GS 15 before that. And so they, they got walked up the chain to be in charge. Jennifer Moore is one of these people, in my opinion, she's just a disaster. I think she was probably a nice lady when she went to the Academy. My friends that, that went to the Academy with her, cause I've got connections all the way back going back now into the eighties. I've got, you know, I've got connections and, you know, she was an okay agent. They said, and then something happened and she just, um, something Phil told me is that there's no GS-15 in the government has ever said no to a bad idea. <laughs> and that's kind of where we're at with the FBI too. It's like these people, like the bad idea fairy comes and it craps out like there's some terrible decision and everybody who's on board with it gets promoted. And all the people that say like, hey, that's foolish. Have you ever actually done that? That's a really bad idea. Uh, those people stay and, and work cases. So Jen Moore, you know, she came and she was the she was the special agent in charge of the intelligence division. Previously, she was in charge, she was in charge of my division. She actually wrote me a three thousand dollar check for fantastic performance, whatever. It was the um, the step below getting like some sort of a commendation for the work that I did. And, and I'm not saying I earned it. I'm just saying I, I'm a pretty decent employee. I'm not a scumbag. And she knew it at the time too. My boss, nobody, I, I don't know anybody that's ever seen somebody get a $3,000 cash award. We're big on like $500, $250 here, but an on the spot award of $3,000 is just not very common in the FBI. And uh, so I got one 
you know, whatever, you know, you get half of it because <laughs> the federal government gets half the award that the federal government is giving you, which is the dumbest thing you've ever heard. But uh, she had to award it to me. So she did. And then 18 months later, she's pulling my pension and my my paycheck and she's pulling my um, my security clearance. And I remember very specifically kind of like a great, you know, little piece of like what kind of person this is. She sat down with my, my squad, which was a bunch of like, you know, I had a much bigger beard at the time and everybody works out. Everybody's fit. Cause everybody knows they may have to fight. Like there's not a lot of frontline FBI jobs where you're in front of bad guys or the potential of bad guys and special operations group, the, the security teams or the surveillance teams actually face that possibility. Um, I won't say it's a very high possibility on any given day, but we sat in crappy neighborhoods and there's a chance you may have to like, you know, do the right thing for yourself, defend yourself, defend your teammate. We had protocols for that. So she's sitting around this table with like a bunch of like dudes who work out prior military, prior law enforcement experience. We had um, former federal air marshals. We had, you know, um, a Marine Corps infantry officer and an army infantry officer, uh, you know, two former air marshals, uh, two local cops, uh, another prior Marine enlisted. Um, he would feel mad if I didn't list that to him and worked Indian country, you know, senior guys, like some of the guys are gray beards. They've been there for a long time. They're not faded by, you know, phased by a lot of things, but this is a relatively, I would say serious group of people that take themselves not too seriously, but are capable, very capable. Uh, we had one really pretty gal who was really nice and just total sweetheart. She was like the only reason that, uh, we had any testosterone check there, but end of the day, and she was at least fit and capable and, you know, rode a motorcycle and wasn't like a, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, shirking, shrinking violet kind of deal. And this woman sits down, fails to read the room completely. She's looking at my supervisor, who's a former Ranger battalion, West Point grad and a, um, and also has a beard and has like, you know, long tactical Jesus hair and all this kind of thing. And she looks over at everybody and she just goes, I want to get to know you guys. So maybe we can go around the table and talk about what your favorite dessert is. And then uh, immediately I was like, when can I be let out on recess? And I've got uh, you know, a snack pack because apparently we were in kindergarten right there with a grown woman looking at a bunch of grown men who have beards and deciding that talking about dessert as an icebreaker is an appropriate discussion. It's absurd. It's craziness. It's like, what's the thing you're most proud of in the FBI? What's the, your biggest concern about working in this agency? What's the the thing that you've seen executive management do that you hope that I don't? Like any number of serious questions. Those I just came up with those right now. I didn't think of them beforehand. It takes almost no work to be a serious human being, sit down around serious people and have a serious discussion. This is completely uh, unprocessable to somebody in this position because they've been used to being stroked and passed up and, and being completely incompetent and never being held accountable. So that's the kind of person that we're talking about. And, you know, it's like we fo floated up a concern in 2020 because some of you may have seen it. There's a, a thing I called Neil Team Six, which is a bunch of people that were in the FBI that took a knee. And they, uh, and if you want to bring up the the Jimmy Gags article from the New York Post, yeah. So all these FBI agents decided to take a knee because they were confronted by some protesters who may or may not have been angry. The videos that I've seen did not indicate that they were like yelling something, and then they all just dropped to a knee and genuflected on behalf of the Black Lives Matter movement, which is crazy. Um, it's also a tactically unsound decision. It's very, very dangerous for people with a weapon on them. They endangered their lives and other lives and also the agents that would come afterwards, setting this unreasonable expectation that we were going to do this political uh, genuflection. But um, in the meantime, that happened because 
people like Jen Moore made the decisions to send us out on the streets and do what I'm going to refer to as a presence patrol. Uh, my friends who have been in the military are going to be able to talk about this to you. But essentially, you show that you are there by marching around or driving around in a convoy or your vehicles and you show like kind of a show of force. This is who we're here. You know, we're, we're not going to be cowed and we're happy to march around. The silliness was is that the FBI was marching around on this presence patrol. And this is the summer of 2020 um, wearing body armor wearing just this like grab bag of non-uniform. So like this shirt would have flown, but so would a t-shirt or a wife beater or, you know, somebody's pink shoes or like, it was just, it was absurdity. It's all silliness. And so they're marching around in a mixed bag, grab bag armor. Nobody's even matched up. We're not wearing hats or helmets or the same thing. And we're marching around in an area that the national guard had already set up checkpoints in under sandbags. Like they were at every street corner in DC that they were controlling. So we're walking around in what I would call like a green zone uh, where some protesters were. And when a couple of them ran into a little bit of resistance because they are indoor dogs and they have no business walking around in you know overt body armor, they got yelled at and they didn't know what to do. So they dropped to a knee and it's really scary. So during all that nonsense, you know, we asked this question. It's a serious question by serious people who are looking at a unserious reaction of the FBI, which was uh, under Bill Barr at that time. This is still Trump time, if you remember. And we said, you know, can you assure us that we are doing something about Black Lives Matter protests that are turning violent and Antifa, which had obviously infiltrated some of these action groups. And I don't know what the Venn diagram looks like for crossover, but it's there. There's no doubt in my mind about that. Same type of attitudes. So, you know, we've got this this really nasty kind of um, hybridized, violent slash loud, threatening um, protests that are going on. And what are we going to do about it? You know, they burned St. John's Church. My team was deployed to that the day after they burned it. And we were kind of helping stand the line with Secret Service. There's nothing dumber than taking a bunch of covert, which is what the FBI calls it, but I would call it low visibility surveillance agents in vans and, and vehicles that we spent a bunch of money to keep their names off the FBI's registry. So if you were to, um, you know, one of the things that the FBI is charged with is public corruption. And we have to do investigations into dirty cops. Well, dirty cops have a lot of really cool tools, like they can run license plates and find out that you're a fed. Um, and they can sign out that your vehicle is assigned to the Federal Bureau of Investigation or Office of Personnel Management, which is the federal government's kind of grab bag or the GSA. And so if you're going to go do investigations and do surveillance on cops that are doing things that are wrong and you don't, you, I mean, you don't want them doing that and you do want the FBI being able to do that or somebody has got to be able to check this authority of, of dirty cops. Um, you spend a lot of money to build fake shell corporations and these kind of things so that we're not immediately visible to what's going on uh, when we're doing these operations. They took all of our vehicles and had us drive out and punch it right in front of the White House lawn on the North Lawn um, and stand right next to St. John's Church and set up like a perimeter with a bunch of Secret Service uniform divisions. These are, you know, they spent a lot of money and time setting these things up and then they're ready to go burn them. So we had, you know, no license plates and we're trying to do the right thing to keep these vehicles from being what we call burned, which is to say exposed because they show up on social media, like all that money's down the tube. Once they've been identified as a Fed, if somebody knows who you are, it's over. They got to re, you know, rebook it, sell that thing off, move it somewhere else, get a new license plate, whatever. And, um, and so we asked this of Jennifer Moore. We said, look, what is the FBI doing about this problem? It's a real problem. We're experiencing this real problem and we have real concerns. And her answer was, you know, I'll get back to you. That's a fair answer, whatever. And when she got back, she said, basically, Chris Ray wasn't going to be going after Antifa because he wanted to keep his job, which to me told me two things. Number one. She sort of agreed that Antifa is kind of like, you know, keep away status. And she wasn't particularly appalled by that. You know, she was back in the management. The management made a decision and she's behind it. Once again, nobody gets above the GS-15 level in the federal government uh, by disagreeing with bad ideas. They have to sign off on everything. So she did. 
And that's the kind of person she is. And she's the kind of lady who took my security clearance. Like, I'm pretty confident she came into the office drunk. I have several credible sources that told me she came into the office drunk uh, during 2020, during the uh, the pandemic, because she was working from home and drinking red wine. And she came in and pet some of the support employees. I've never done that. That's crazy to me. Like, why would that person be able to tell me that I'm not fit for the job? But that's the FBI we're, leaving, we're dealing with right now. Um, sorry about that obsession about it too. Um, in any case, I will encourage you guys to uh, to follow if you want to see some of these fun dumps that uh, you know I'm picking a fight with the FBI because I think it's our information, ours being the American people's. I believe in a thing that I'm calling radical transparency, and I'm hoping that it kind of you know breaks down some of the rat's nest that exist. There's not a lot of people that are willing to do it. It's not a very comfortable position to be in. And uh, we're about to join another guy who was willing to do that thing. We're going to be bringing on my buddy, Steve Friend, shortly. He's been doing a thing on uh, on Twitter that is called, uh, he's called it the OPR Files. It's in honor of our friend, Matt Taibbi, who's been doing the Twitter files. This is a, just another piece of that radical transparency. It's that uh, that dump that's going to get you, you know, first of all, they're not going to smile about it, but we are putting out things that I think the American people have a right to know. And that is the failings of the FBI. And... And what was done about it? Because there's not there's not a lot of information that is publicly available to you all. So this is a very inside look that uh, that Steve gives, and it's been part of our crime and punishment segment. Um, but moreover, he's now sharing it over here on Twitter because there's a lot more thousands of people that can see it. So Steve, welcome back, my friend. Oh, thank you very much for the chance to be here. Yeah, bud. Uh, hey, I want to uh, I want to open with kind of a new thing. Phil, I don't know if you've got uh, flight aware up, but I'm going to let you kind of give some commentary on. Uh, on where in the world is Chris Ray and what has he been up to? Well, I mean, you you came up with this wonderful idea that we should just uh, look at the tail number on the uh, the G five that he flies around in. Um, so uh, we got this nifty we had this nifty account on Twitter. Unfortunately, uh, he can't post live. He can only post in retrospect because I guess it's a security issue for uh, for important people like Christopher Ray. So I did uh, pull up the flightaware.com on the uh, the tail number for. The director's jet and uh, looked over the last week of travel. Um, the one note that you you did point out was any time that the uh, the plane departs from Manassas is a major indicator that Christopher Ray is on it because I guess he doesn't like to make the the twenty minute commute to to Reagan. Is that correct? It's the flip of that actually. So whenever it goes from Manassas to Reagan, uh, okay, it picks him up, and 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 that just comes from you not having to work in the swamp in D.C. But uh, essentially, Manassas is a little bit further out to the west, and it's a drive, and you got to go out there. What, what's the what's the uh, highway, Phil? I forget what it's called now. Sixty six. 66. I, I knew it was 60 something. Um, so if you take 66 and you got to drive out of DC, you, you get stuck in traffic all the way in Arlington, which is you know just outside of it. And then you drive and drive and drive and you end up getting outside of um, Fairfax County and you end up in the next county over, which is going to be Prince William. That's where Manassas Airport is. So rather than do that, and by the way, he's not driving, right? Somebody else is driving him. <laughs> he's got a motorcade. Uh, you know, he, he has the jet fly and land for a thousand bucks every touchdown at DCA, which is Reagan uh, National Airport. People right. will be flying there, no? So it's closer to DC for him. It's very I'm, convenient. I'm thinking he doesn't get billed for that little the little hop, skip, and jump it makes. But uh no. you know, that's just the um, taxpayer's expense, I guess. So yeah, the only uh the only if, if that's the case, and the only time that I, I see it leaving from Reagan was a flight to Detroit, Michigan. So mm-hmm. <laughs> Fun times for the director, probably doing a, uh, you know, a hop over to assess the SAC in Detroit. I know they got the new SAC there after Steve D'Antuano left um, after the Whitmer case. So there's 
probably yep. making sure that they're keeping things up tight and, you know, no new violent domestic abuse cases from uh, case agents like Trask. Uh, and, right. uh, and, and no wife beating and, no and maybe they can see Maybe he was checking in on making sure there's no pro-life clinics that are getting out of control there. So they could go ahead and. But I'm definitely them. ensuring the entrapment cases are at an all time high. We've got to be making sure we hit at least a half dozen of those every uh, fiscal year. Correct. Um, and so, and then and it looks like then outside of uh, leaving from, from uh, Reagan, a couple of other flights, but they were overseas. Uh, those could have been just like evidence runs or something like that. Uh, it looks like they went down to Dominican Republic, which I don't know, seems like kind of a good gig if you're making an evidence run for the weekend and Greece mm-hmm. for a day. So not too much travel over this, this week, but uh, we are going to the holidays. So maybe he's holding that back and we'll, I'm sure we'll see him in the Adirondacks here soon. Sure, sure enough. So we'll do we'll do where in the world is Chris Ray when we do these podcasts and have Steve Collin do it. And then um, I, I hyped your uh, your OPR file. Um, give us if I missed anything. I think you heard me on the intro coming in. I saw you uh, logging in. Um, give us any background I might have missed. And then let's let's uh, launch into one or whatever you got for me today. All right. So, uh, yeah, I'm just pushing it out on Truth and on Twitter. Want as many people to see it as I can. I'm really just trying to draw this stark contrast between, you know, today's day 86 for me. I, I assume you lost con, you know, just count of how many days you've been gone. Yeah, it's, it's um, 200 something. <laughs> yeah. So short of a sort of a summary dismissal, I think uh, we are well in excess of of anything that, that we see here, and uh, you know, it's for things like in your case, not putting a Q-tip up your nose, and for me, uh, accessing the employee handbook. But uh, I guess that's far worse than sexual harassment and, you know, failure to safeguard your weapon, all that and the like. Um, So I'm pushing that out and hopefully, you know, that that catches on with uh, with folks because they they get a chance to see it. These are super OPSEC within the Bureau um, and they're not for public uh, for public dissemination, which is is to me just a miscarriage of justice because I think this is worthy of the public's knowledge. Yeah, not only that. I mean, there's nothing that's law enforcement sensitive here. There's nothing. It's only embarrassment to the FBI. And so the idea that they would hide these files and make them non-distributable is really the FBI covering for the FBI because they need to keep the reputation of the FBI, which at this point is somewhat trashed. What is the uh, the hashtag that people can search to to pull that up? Uh, hashtag OPR files. So spell that out. O P R F I L E S. Okay, so just spelled out. Um, they can read. How many have you posted so far? Uh, so I've done it over the weekend. So today uh, I came up with num- installment number nine was the last one. And, okay. uh, you know, just only so far I've only worked through one month's worth of the uh, quarterly emails. So a lot left in the tank. Yeah. Um, and as you kind of shared with us, and, and I'm sure the FBI headquarters people that are required to monitor us are, are quaking in their boots to know, um, <laughs> you pulled four four monthly emails, they're quarterly emails, four quarterly emails for a period of five years. So 20, 20 or so of these uh, these lists, and we are through one of them at this point. And yep. the things that we've seen so far are, uh, you know, abuse of a spouse, choking, knocking somebody unconscious in front of your children. Um, we've seen having sexual affairs with confidential human sources and lying about it to your own spouse uh, who worked for the bureau as well, which is a cool move to do. We've seen some uh, alcohol, which is pretty standard, the kind of classic uh, abuse of alcohol and then abuse of local cops once you've been confronted for your alcohol problem. That's kind of a real classic uh, FBI move. The Wrapping the bu car around the tree isn't one we have yet, but I know that there's probably one of those in there. Um, so, you know, just the kind of the, the sundry 
when you call them low lights, I think that's a really good way of describing it. Low lights of FBI behavior who are normal human beings and, and you know, do all kinds of screwed up things like anybody else. The difference is, is that, uh, you know, they have the standard to maintain, which is that they are kind of above, you know, any kind of uh, scrutiny like this and people still fail at it. And then the FBI doesn't want anybody to know about it, which is where I think you and I have the real problem with it. Oh, exactly. And and, and don't uh, miss uh, today's latest dump, which was the, the person who was uh, molesting the eight-year-old family member on multiple occasions. So, you know, we do run the gambit from uh, booze, broads, and bucards to pedophiles. Right. And and of course, the other thing we notice is that they don't tell us whether or not that was referred for criminal prosecution, which should have been what you led with in my book. I, yeah. I mean, I think you feel the same way. Yep. So just two for you today, still in the same uh, same quarterly email. Um, these will be put out on the hashtag. So maybe it'll entice you know, this will be for you know behind the paywall, if for lack of a better term for folks <laughs> encourage them to listen to the podcast, or they can wait for uh, me to post it the following couple of days. So producer Phil, Kyle Serafin, pre- be prepared for the first. It is uh, violation of source guidelines, falsified web TA, lack of candor, not under oath, and unprofessional conduct. So for banger. Employee tasked to CHS with performing operational activities without first obtaining required approval from an outside agency. The CHS was on probation with the State Department of Corrections. An employee was required to obtain the permission from the DOC commissioner prior to operating the CHS. Employee falsely entered on official FBI form source opening communication that the employee had obtained the required permission. The employee also falsified WebTA records to reflect that the employee had worked when, in fact, he had not. The employee lacked candor when questioned by the supervisor about completing work assignments. The employee also transported spouse and minor child in a government-leased vehicle. Oh, yeah. And finally, the employee engaged in unprofessional conduct by playing video games and watching ESPN on a personal cell phone during work hours, including at a search site when local law enforcement officials sought employees assistance. In aggravation, the employee Mm. had been an FBI employee for a little more than a year and repeatedly engaged in dishonest communications with the supervisor. Integrity is an FBI core value employee lost the trust of the supervisor and coworkers. So I think it's a fait accompli, but give me your guess. Oh, this person's toast. Yeah, that's a dismissal. <laughs> Summarily dismissed before they could even resign. What do you think, Phil? Well, yeah, I mean, it's definitely a dismissal. And I'm wondering if they were even off probation, which means it was Unlikely. even easier to get rid of them. So I'm going to say summary yeah, dismissal. Definitely dismissal, not summary dismissal, just regular dismissal. Um, but uh you know, that's the other thing too. If this was a probationary guy, I don't know why they bothered with the OPR. They should have just walked him out. Right, um, and, right. and and we're gonna have a guest that comes on um in maybe the next week or so, uh, who's a friend of mine. And he was walked out because he didn't wear a suit jacket to court for an initial for an the initial. case agent. Well, yeah, when the case agent was Stop. probably wearing torn jeans and a freaking t-shirt. So um <laughs> That, that I mean, this is the seriousness of the FBI. Like we we do an OPR for this person who clearly was just a screw up, and a real cop. And and I say that because he was a cop and he is a cop again. Um, you know, gets walked out for not wearing a jacket over his freaking shirt and tie. It's it's just it's absurdities on top of absurdities. All right, give me number two. All right, number two. Supervisory employee accepted gifts mm. from a vendor, a company that bids on contracts with and has received contracts from the FBI. The Letter employee- of censure. Hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it gets it gets a little more spicy. All right, it's a little more. Sorry, spicy. Uh, I, I couldn't <laughs> help myself. Employee attended two professional sporting events as a guest of the vendor. The cost of the tickets was in excess of the twenty dollars limit imposed by the ethics policy. 
Right. A second vendor saw the employee with the first vendor at one of the games and complained to the FBI that the employee's association with the first vendor was the reason that the second vendor did not win the contract with the FBI. Mm. The employee's actions created the appearance of impropriety and favoritism. The employee also accepted a day of shooting at a shooting range. So this guy liked guns. This is a problem. And failed to pay his full share for the range time and ammunition, which exceeded $20. Failed to seek advice from the FBI's Office of Integrity and Compliance. All right. Which I forgot. I forgot they have that. Yeah, that's we have that? Okay. Yeah, we do. No, that's real. That's definitely real. <laughs> uh, this seems like it should be something for Twitter, but okay. In, in mitigation, employee has a positive performance history and no prior disciplinary history. Aggravation employee's supervisor held to a higher standard. Employee's actions harm the FBI's reputation. Blah, blah, blah. Your guesses, please. Uh, I think that he was he or she was promoted immediately and is now a assistant director probably in charge of some kind of sensitive relationship with like another government agency this sounds a lot like the, this is not the right one but it sounds like the lady who uh took the sports tickets and then got charge of the fbi's relationship with the cia because why not um I, I honestly think this person probably got almost nothing and, and then promoted but phil what do you think uh i'm gonna go with 30 days uh, you know definitely not nothing worse than that but you know i mean there's got to be some kind of punishment yep 14-day suspension, then probably retired and got a uh, chief counsel position over a social media committee. Uh, no, no, no. 14-day suspension and then promoted. <laughs> 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 Knowing that this person was compromised and is willing to bend ethics, like they become a senior manager. That's the way we do it here. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. So uh, people can check out the OPR files on your two handles. You are on truth at real underscore Steve friend. And then on Twitter, if you want to see it there, it's at real Steve friend, no punctuation, just to keep things spicy. Once again, I will be the only person who can keep track of this stuff because I care. I care deeply. I appreciate it, man. Oh, and I will say one more thing. Um, I'm about to hit send on this. Um, on Twitter, uh, I am going to be putting out that I am keep it. So I am going to be throwing my hat in the ring. I volunteer as tribute to be the uh, speaker of the house. My only conditions are that FBI whistleblowers are the top priority for the Judiciary Committee, and uh, Kyle Serafin is going to be my sergeant at arms. So look for that. Sold. I'm in. Um, do you have any preferred calibers that you would like to list uh, instead of pronouns? Yeah. All your, the guns. With your candidacy. All, all the guns. He says all the guns. <laughs> uh, we're going to go up to like large, multi million, 120 millimeter shells all the way down to 22. Right? <laughs> we got the funds, brother. We just print it. Okay. Yeah, print the money, and then we can just give it to Ukraine or not, and we're all good. Yep. This sounds good. Hey, thanks uh, for thanks, sharing man. the OPR files, people. Check it out. Go look in there, and uh, you will find the eternal badness that you expected and all the disappointments that are out there. Um, thanks for joining us for the Kyle Serafin Show. I guess we have settled on this name against my will. Producer Phil has started calling it that. He even sends me text messages that I try to figure out what they say, and he says, hey, man, When's the next TKSS? And I'm wondering what in God's name is TKSS? It is the Kyle Serafin show. He actually got us a, like a terrible picture that people told me makes me look constipated. I tend to agree. My wife hates it, but it is what it is. We will get a better uh we'll get a better picture. So you can find us on Apple and Spotify and Bean Pod. I think is that right, Phil? Bean Pod? Yep, Pod Bean. Uh pretty much anywhere Podbean. you download your typical podcasts. We're on all of them now. That's right. And if you want to go look, we're also the video versions on Rumble. So if you want to see my smiling face and if you want to see the uh, the highly sweet Geisley Automatics AR-15 in the background with a dead air suppressor on it with a uh, 
what do I got there? I got a LVPO and a reptilian mount. And uh, I got a one to six vortex razor HD. If you guys are getting nerded out, I got a cloud defensive light on there that throws out massive, massive lumens and serious candela power. Um, that's, that's how I roll. And I got an RMR on top because you never know when you might have to shoot close. That's, that's actually my FBI duty weapon that I bought for myself. And it had, uh, can I just say it had a gay FBI badge on the side of it. It was really embarrassing. It was just kind of like screen printed on there. So I, I, uh, I spray painted it with a rattle can as many of you folks who have been in the military know how to do. I rattle can that sucker up and they told me that was a possible OPR offense. Coloring your gun to make it fit the desert backdrop is against the FBI policy. By the way, it's not in the FBI policy. I would be willing to go to the mat with anybody. They said that it was resurfacing the weapon. And uh, I, as someone who has been paid to do Cerakoting and Duracoding and KG gun coating and have dozens of weapons under my uh, under my belt when it comes to baking on finishes that are micro ceramics i would go ahead and take uh i would take issue with their judgment and i'm willing to go to court for that too so anyway that is a straight hour that we've done here on the kyle seraphin show like subscribe uh give us a funny review i'll read one next time um phil will have to cue one of that for me and uh we really appreciate you listening it uh it's a nice voice for the agent community that is coming to me and stay tuned for some really exciting interviews coming up we've got some fun ones so thanks again folks Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin.